This morning, uh, we are going to start a new sermon series for the summer. We're going to be walking through John's letters. So we just finished uh, almost a year in the book of Revelation, and uh, man, that was just a great privilege uh, to get to go through that. And so we're going to take a little change of course, and we're going to walk through some much smaller letters of John. Throughout the summer, we're going to walk through mostly 1 John, but in August, we'll also look at 2nd and 3rd John. And so uh, Brandon read for you chapter 1 this morning, and that's where we're going to begin. Uh, I will pray, and then we'll talk about this letter. Lord, thank you uh, again for this day. Um, Thank you for the uh, privilege and honor it is to come together as a gospel family um, and to get to open your word. Um, Lord, thank you that you speak to us through your word and that you have have put your word in our hands and you've given us um, such great access to it. And not only do we have access to your your word, uh, but we have access to you because of Jesus. And we thank you for this truth. Um, Lord, remind us this morning of who you are. Um, stir in us, ignite our hearts, turn our gaze back to you, um, that we might uh, live as a reflection of you throughout this week as we depart this place. I ask that you would just uh, hide me behind your cross and and do your work in the hearts of your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we begin in 1 John. And I'm going to take a moment uh, just to do a short intro into the letter of 1 John. So we'll start with um, addressing who is the author of 1 John. The author is John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle and the author of the Gospel of John, and the author of Revelation, which we just walked through. I figured after walking through Revelation for like a year, John owed me like he basically wrote these sermons. They're just, I'm just preaching sermons that are already written, uh, so thankful for a little different approach. Uh, He was a fisherman, he was one of Christ's inner circle, along with James and Peter, and he was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John wrote this letter um, to the church. The letter was addressed, we know, to believers. While the letter itself doesn't indicate who they were or exactly where they lived, the fact that no one is mentioned by name tells us that this was likely a circular letter that was sent to Christians in a number of places meant to encourage and provide clarity to the church. Evidence from early Christian writers places the Apostle John in Ephesus during most of the later years of his life. We're talking 70 to 100 A.D. The earliest confirmed use of 1 John was in the Roman province of Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey, where Ephesus was located. Clement of Alexandria indicates that John ministered in the various churches scattered throughout that province, so it could be assumed that 1 John was sent to the churches in the province of Asia. And this letter was written for the church. That we know for sure. And why does John write this letter to the church during this specific time? One of the most dangerous heresies in the first two centuries of the church was Gnosticism. Its central teaching was that the spirit, spirit is entirely good and that matter is entirely evil. And from this unbiblical idea flowed several important errors. Number one, it was believed that the human body, because it's made up of matter, is inherently evil, and that's contrasted with God, and because God's Holy Spirit, he is therefore good. And so salvation becomes the escape from the body achieved not by faith in Jesus Christ, but by obtaining a special knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, and that's where Gnosticism comes from. Christ's true humanity, this, is, this here is why it was a heresy, 
was denied in two ways by those who held to Gnosticism. Some said that because that Christ could not have been fully man because matter is evil. And so some believed that Christ only seemed to have a body, that his body was essentially some kind of divine mirage and it wasn't actually composed of matter. And others said that the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at baptism and left him before he died. And this view was called Serinthianism, and it came from Serinthus, and this view is the background of much of 1 John. This heresy has infiltrated the church, and it's changing the way that people, not only what they believe, but the way that they live. Since the body was considered evil, it was to be treated harshly, which got super weird. And then because of the paradoxically, like this dualism led to a ton of licentiousness within the church. The reasoning was that since it was matter that was evil and not the breaking of God's law, well, then breaking God's law became of no real moral consequence. So not, as you can see, like once we begin to lose sight of the essential truth of who Christ is, there's just this natural crumbling that takes place and people begin to live differently. Often our motivation for embracing heresies and false truths about Christ is it opens the door for humans to live according to the flesh as they desire to do. Christians within the church were struggling. Outside voices were deceiving the church and causing them to stray from the gospel. And John writes to them with the following intentions. Number one, he wants to equip them to stand against false teachers. He wants to correct them in the gospel, remind them what is true, what has been known from the beginning. Secondly, he wants to encourage them as a fellowship, that in the midst there's this crumbling taking place, the church is being divided by false teaching, and he wants to bring them together, unite them back in the gospel. And then number three, he wants to assure them of the salvation they have because of Jesus. And the foundation necessary for each of these three things is a right view of who Christ is. And so that's where John starts right out of the gate. No, no, no flowery introduction. He goes from verse one to remind the church who Jesus is. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. When life gets confusing, when anxiety is overwhelming, when the church feels divided, even over something as significant as what they're facing here, what we need first and foremost always is to have our gaze turned back to Jesus Christ and to be reminded of who he is and what he has done. And that's what John seeks to do. That which was from the beginning, that Christ was fully God in the beginning with God, that he breathed life into all of humanity, that Jesus was from the beginning and nothing falls outside the reign of his perfect control and power. We learned through walking through the book of Revelation that the point of Revelation is who Jesus is, that Jesus is triumphant and holds all things. All things go according to his plan. And John says, we have heard this message. The gospel is testified to us directly from Christ. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked upon and touched him with our hands. The very word of life. You see, the reality of Christ stood in stark opposition to Gnosticism. 
part of the teaching of Gnosticism was that while Jesus was God, he wasn't actually a physical man. Yet John declares, I heard him, I saw him, I studied him, I touched him. He was a man as we are. He, he came, he put on flesh, the, the God came, put on flesh, and experienced all that we experience, all of the temptation and struggle and trial. And in verse 2, this life was made manifest. We've seen it, we testify to it. The Clark Commentary summarizes John's message in this verse as this. We deliver nothing by hearsay, nothing by tradition, nothing from conjecture. We have had the fullest certainty of all that we write and preach. John is reminding the church who Jesus is and that this isn't about John's personal beliefs. It's not about some philosophy class he took his you know, freshman year at college. It's, it's nothing like this. We have seen Jesus. He has given us his word. John declares boldly who Christ is that the church might know him for he is the way of life. Verse 3 and 4, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, so that your joy, our joy, may be complete. The purpose of John's declaration about the eternally existent, physically present word of life who is God, yet a person distinct from the Father, is to bring, his, bring the readers into fellowship with God's people, yes, but also with God himself. In verse 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. That through a right understanding of Jesus, that is the basis upon which true community can be had. We're made a family by the blood of Christ, but then also, like, not only does he want the church to be emboldened in their fellowship with one another as children of God, but also to be growing in their fellowship with the Father who's invited us into such. The term fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It comes from the word koinos, which very literally means in common. We see this word in Acts 2, 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. The word common is the ancient Greek word koinonia. John is telling these believers that they are invited into fellowship, not only with each other, but with the Father. They are literally able to have a relationship with God, to walk with Him, to share in His blessings, and, to help, and that He, through His Word, allows them to discern that which is true and that which is false. This was astounding for people to hear then. There had been so many gods and pagan idols that had been worshipped and spoke of, but they were far away. We told that fictional stories were told about all that they did together in different places. And, you know, these stories were loved by children, but they were stories. This God, the God of the universe, invites us into relationship with him. This is, was astounding then, and it's astounding now. God desires your affections. He desires to, you to walk with him in actual relationship because of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are in Christ, but everlasting joy. Authentic, gospel-centered fellowship 
can only take place amongst a people who are actively in fellowship with the Lord. Last Sunday, we had a celebration Sunday, and we recognized new members. And you might have noticed that one of the things that we recited from our membership covenant was that amongst members, there is an expectation to be walking in fellowship with God, to be taking spiritual discipline seriously, and for that to be a commitment. And that's, that's not just haphazard. That's not just a technicality. We recognize that to be the people of God, to be the church as he's called us to be, is to be a fellowship of people who are also individually in fellowship with God. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The countercultural fellowship we have been called into can only be lived out by those who are actively engaged in a loving relationship with our Lord. Here recently, It seems like it's getting worse. I don't know if it's because of 2020 or what. But because I have a church email and I'm on some pastor lists, I get some of the most ridiculous email marketing campaigns you could possibly imagine. For $99, I can know the secret to breaking the 100 barrier. And then for like $80 more, the 200 barrier. And everybody is like a consultant now. And I'm just mass produced. I am constantly getting these streams of just this secret sauce. If I would just read this, do this, sign up for this. The truth is, this is all silliness. You want, I know the secret sauce for a church flourishing in the truth, for a church flourishing in the gospel. And it's a group of people who are growing together in Christ, what being transformed by the power of the gospel. Like, there's no secret. Like, we know how, any church knows how to draw a crowd. If you put enough money into to what you do up in front of people, if you do enough programming that's attractive, like you can, uh, you can appeal to consumerism. There's, no, there's a, no secret. It's not tricky to gather people together. But actual transformation, actual gospel transformation, actual health that glorifies the Lord, it's really not on any kind of thing that you can just drum up. It's about you and your relationship with God. As a group of people come together, made family through Jesus, and are committed to growing in holiness and Christ-likeness individually, that's where incredible things start to take place. Not, not, maybe not incredible to the world, but incredible to the kingdom. Because the discipleship of the world, the way that the world sees discipleship, is drastically different than the discipleship that Christ has modeled and called us to. The kind of discipleship that Christ calls us to produces lasting joy described here by John as opposed to just fleeting moments of happiness that the world values so much. I'll explain this. Let me give you an example. The world's discipleship tells us, be popular. Christ's discipleship says, reject popularity. Be content to be popular with me. The world's discipleship says, be great. Christ's discipleship says, reject greatness. You're great to me. The world's discipleship says, be successful at all costs. But Christ's discipleship says, reject seeking success. Be a success with me. The world's discipleship says, avoid avoid suffering, avoid failure. Christ's discipleship says, embrace suffering and embrace the world's view of failure. Be faithful to me. 
This family of missionary disciples we've been called to be is dependent on God working on us as we walk with him, for he's the one who brings light to the darkness. Verse 5 through 7 speak of this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the message we have heard. The message given by God is the gospel. And the gospel begins with the truth, the, the truth that God is light, that in him is no darkness, that he is perfect in holiness and goodness, and that from the beginning creation started in such a way, perfect and holy and good in a way that reflects him. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth. Remember that John is writing to believers. So he's not talking about unbelievers, but he's talking there are believers in the church who have lost sight of what God's called them to. They claim to be of God, but their lives don't reflect godliness. Like they're godly on Sunday, but then they go on to live a different way. And he's saying that to do that is to live a lie, to contrast the truth of who God is. And in verse 7 but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. He says the alternative to this, the reason that fellowship is necessary is that we are helping one another to walk in the light, to walk in the truth, which is the word of God, that this, if this is our guide in all things, if we're walking with God in accordance with his ways, we have a fellowship that reflects him, makes much of him, and is transforming us. To be a Christian is to acknowledge the light of God as the source of all truth. True fellowship is the result of people being changed by that truth and then being unified around it in the midst of a culture that is often hostile to it. In 2004, the governor of the state of New Jersey, he was caught in a scandal. Though he was a married man with children, he was also having a sexual relationship with a man. At the press conference he held to admit this, he began by saying, my truth is that I am a gay American. Notice the term that he used and what it revealed about his view of the world versus what he sought to personify for so many years. He said, my truth. We live in a culture where you can have your truth and I can have my truth and I don't question your truth and you don't question my truth. And on one hand, this is freedom from a political standpoint. From a worldly standpoint, that makes sense. But it is not a means to freedom from sin and death. For Jesus said, I am the truth. You don't get your truth. They don't get their truth. I am truth. And the Bible clearly tells us of a truth that is greater than any individual's feelings about what they believe to be true. It should not surprise Christians that this is the world's philosophy. Like, I'm really, I'm always caught off guard by how surprised Christians seem about that. We get all up in arms, social media just becomes this platform for us to act like we're so surprised 
But the truth is, if Christ did not die and rise again, then perhaps that philosophy should be our philosophy as well, for it makes sense in a very natural, worldly perspective. Don't be dramatic every time the world does something worldly. I mean, come on, like, that makes sense. We've been called to something different. That is the reason that we live different, but it's only because of Jesus. Anybody outside of Jesus, we have no reason to be shocked or surprised when the world does worldly things. And sometimes I think it hurts our testimony that we act so surprised. We know what we've been saved by. For us who are in Christ, our truth is his word. And his truth is bigger than whatever I think my truth is in the moment, whatever you think your truth is, personal feelings, personal insight. We recognize that is flawed and in need of a perfect redirection which God has provided us in his word. And all else we seek to put to death. Every human must either submit to or defy the truth of God. Either die to self or declare yourself to be God. Those are the options. And the tendency towards the latter is in all men because of the curse. And for this reason, the Christian can be thankful that he is a good and righteous redeemer. In verses 8 through 10, our last three verses today. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have no sin, John has challenged the church to walk in the light and assured them that the blood of Christ is sufficient and good to redeem. This does not, however, mean that we no longer battle against the flesh. To think of ourselves, to think this of ourselves, is to deceive ourselves. And to say this of ourselves is to live and believe a lie. And the truth is not in us. For all of us fall short of the glory of God. Even the very thought that occurs in your head that I, I don't really sin, boom, like there it is. You do, and you probably need to dig a little deeper because I assure you, it is there. Even that self-righteous moment is evidence of you believing yourself to be maybe something more than you truly are. Spurgeon on this text said, our deceitful heart reveals an almost satanic shrewdness in self-deception. If you say you have no sin, you have achieved a fearful success. You have put out your own eyes and perverted your own reason. All fall short of the glory of God. All are continually being transformed into the fullness of Christ, which will take place on the day that glorification happens. But if we confess our sin, he says, though sin is present, it no longer keeps us from God for the sin that we take part in and we fall into. The price of that has been paid once and for all in Jesus. In fact, now it is our brokenness that leads us to the feet of our Savior time and time again. Romans 8 tells us that for those who are his, all things are conforming us to the image of Christ. And this isn't true for all people. All things aren't good for all people, but for those who belong to Jesus, all things are pointing us towards Christ. Even our sin has now been redeemed and that it brings us to a place of awareness time and time again of our need for Jesus and reminds us in that moment of what it is he has done. That even our sin now is pushing us towards the day when 
no more tears will be shed. In Luke 18, we see a story about a religious man and the sinner who prayed before God. The Pharisee brags about how righteous he is, while the sinner just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The one who confessed his sin was the one who agreed with God about how bad he truly was, and he recognized rightly his need for a redeemer. The basis of our relationship with God is realization that we need him. And this is expressed through confession, and it transforms us through active repentance. Our sins are not forgiven because we confess. If this were the case, if forgiveness for a sin could only come where there was a confession, then we would all be damned because it would be impossible for us to commit, confess every sin that we commit. We are not even aware of many of the sins that we commit in the perfect eyes of a holy God. We are forgiven because our punishment was put on Jesus and we are cleansed by his blood and his blood alone. However, confession is still a significant part of our relationship. And this is the context John speaks from. As God convicts us of sin that is hindering our fellowship with him, we must confess it and receive forgiveness and cleansing for our relationship with God to continue to flourish without hindrance. Times in our life when we find ourselves walking in darkness are almost always seasons when repentance is being withheld. And we need not be afraid to come to a place of sitting and pondering and allowing ourselves to, to do the work of surveying our own hearts and mining and, and sifting. And where is that sin that perhaps is, is causing a hindrance in me that I've, I've maybe hid from and failed to identify? And the body comes into that. Often the people that you're in communi community with are the folks who can most readily speak to that and see the thing that perhaps we cannot see in ourselves. For our joy to be complete, we need to lay at his feet whatever it is that keeps us from walking in the light. We need him, perhaps through his church, his people in whom he dwells, to show us that which must die. If we confess these things to him, John tells us he is faithful and just to forgive. Because of Christ's work, the righteousness of God is our reward. Spurgeon, one more Spurgeon quote, I, uh, I appreciated his commentary on this text. And he says, this text means just this, treat God truthfully and he will treat you truthfully. Make no pretensions before God, but lay bare your soul. Let him see it as it is. And then he will be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What would it look like today before the Father to lay bare your soul? To no longer seek to just stack things on top of that which you're ashamed of, but to take that which you're ashamed of, maybe that which you've almost forgotten is in there, and to bring it out, to bring it before the Father, maybe to confess and to speak of it with someone close to you, a brother, a sister, that it may no longer have power over you, but that you might recognize in that moment and acknowledge the power of God who has died for this very thing. Because if we say that we have not sinned, we deny the presence of sin. We're self-deceived 
and we deny the truth of God's word with our lives. No man has ever been kept out of God's kingdoms for his confessed badness, but many for their supposed goodness. As we close this morning, how does ignoring our sin make God out to be a liar? When we ignore our sin, three things happen. Number one, we make little of his holiness. God deserves our reverence. He deserves our repentance. And growing in holiness requires continually putting to death the things of the flesh. We make little of his holiness when we continue to embrace and ignore the things of the flesh which stand in stark contrast to him. For God is is perfectly holy. He is perfectly good and gracious. And so even, even our smallest sin, in contrast to a perfectly holy God, separates us from him by an eternal ocean of sin. God is perfectly holy in a way that we cannot understand. It's like if everything was a different shade of green, how would you begin to explain to somebody what red is? Perfect holiness stands outside of our ability to fathom but we're growing in awareness of that and we make light of that when we ignore our sin. Number two, we functionally deny the gospel when we ignore our sin. We need no rescue. If my sin is insignificant, then why did Christ go to the cross? If my sin's not really that bad, if it's not really that big a deal, then I don't understand the fullness of the gospel. For growing in the gospel involves one Yes, understanding the goodness of God's grace and more clarity, but I can only do that when I understand the depths of my sin with more clarity, that the cross becomes bigger as I am growing in awareness of my need for Jesus and at the same time, the, of the realization of how great his grace truly is. Growing in the gospel is both. Growing simply in awareness of God's goodness leads to a place of self-righteous legalism Growing simply in awareness of how bad I am causes me to turn my eyes from and run from the Father believing my, my sin to be too great. Everybody struggles with one or the other. You're either prone to make little of your sin. That's either your natural tendency. I'm not that bad. I mean, I, don't, I didn't cuss, chew, or go with girls who do. I'm not that bad. Or, that's, that's Cassville thing. <laughs> or, I'm simply so aware of how broken I am that God could never accept me. We need, the truth is both. We are so broken, but he is so good in light of that. We functionally deny the gospel when we ignore our sin. And number three, we forsake our identity as children of God. To ignore or deny sin is to embrace sin. And when we do this, we invite misery into our life and the father grieves such things for he desires our joy there's a reason that <clears throat> i recently read a poll uh, i believe it was i think it was wall street journal but there was a survey done by billionaires in the united states and there was this striking uh, statistic that all 90 percent of billionaires in the united states and this kind of anonymous survey that was done claimed to not feel fully complete, or even to be happy. Like, all the things that the world has will never bring pure joy because sin 
invites misery into our lives. Even if everything looks great on your Instagram account, embracing sin is an invitation for misery. Embracing Jesus is an invitation for joy, that our joy might be complete. Is life pretty miserable? Maybe this is trial and growth, but maybe it's unrepentant sin right now. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes this. Fallen humans are natural self-advocates. It flows out of us. Self-exonerating, self-defending, we do not need to teach young children to make excuses when they are caught misbehaving. I can testify I've had to teach my kids many things, but self-advocating, lying, like that's just this one day, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, you're a little pagan. Like when did that happen? You were so cute, we were getting ice cream, and now you're this this little depraved pagan person. That's just because they finally come to the age where they're physically capable of demonstrating the curse that they were born into. Like that's the reason for that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are natural self-advocates and no, we, are, we are so good at doing this to ourselves. Nobody can convince us that our sin's not that bad, better than we can. Because that's what our flesh is prone to want to believe. So we buy into the arguments hook, line, and sinker. And we'll even adjust our theology if we need to. We'll even take a section of the Bible and say, well, maybe, maybe that was just culturally speaking of that time. I mean, that can't be right because I, I want this. I want this thing. Most active lifestyles of sin, when you really boil it down, when you're calling out the person, when you meet with them, any church discipline meeting I've ever been a part of, it almost always boils down. It takes a while to get there, but to, I just, I want this. I just, I want it. And so I reconstruct everything in order to have it. John's word, verse seven, but but if we walk in the light, if we are a people who value transparency and repentance as he is in the light, well, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I want you, I want to encourage you today to be aware of your sin, to acknowledge your sin, to put to death your sin. But I do not wish to beat you to death with your sin. I wish that bringing that, as you bring your sin to the table, might that make all the more clear the delight that the Father has for you. That we are not, we are a people, as a people are being transformed by the gospel, we're no longer fearful to bring our sin to the table because God is just so darn magnificent. He just loves me so much that I have no fear to bring this out. You can know everything about me. You can see the worst. You can know the worst. I'm not fearful of the worst. I have nothing to hold back because Jesus Christ delights in me. Though we are prone to forsake our identity as children of God, might we rest assured that our Savior never forsakes us. And we pray to that end this morning. God, you are gracious and glorious. You are abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Your mercy knows no end. We thank you, for we are sinners. We are sinners in need of much grace. I will stumble 
uh, before this day is out, I have no doubt. Over and over, our eyes are turned to, to glittery things. Uh, our mind is prone to thoughts of anger. We feel, Lord, anxieties that uh, are often just a reflection of our lack of faith that you have this all figured out. Lord, when I am most fearful, I acknowledge that I, I struggle to believe that you've really got it all worked out. Lord, I'm prone to think that my plan, my, my, my ways, it might, it might be worth a look, that if you would just look and consider my plan, my thoughts, perhaps that would prevent you from making a mistake. Lord, as I say that to you aloud, what foolishness, what foolishness I am prone to. Lord, forgive us of our unfaithfulness. Forgive us of our doubts. Forgive us when we, you know, like Ananias, Sapphira, we're prone to hold back parts of our life in hopes that maybe you won't know, hopes that maybe you won't see it. If I bury it deep down, deep enough within me, perhaps nobody will know. Lord, free us from such things. Lord, let the, with the, with the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, penetrate the deepest parts of our hearts and our souls that we might put everything on the table. Lord, might I ask you this. Would you lead us to bring everything to the table before you? And then if you so will, would that result in us bringing everything to the table before others? Lord, would we be a church where people um, are known? Where part of our, uh, our, the strength of our fellowship is that we know one another, that we know what we've been rescued from, that we know our deepest, darkest struggles and weaknesses, and that we're able to hold one another accountable and to point one another to you because we know one another. Lord, even as we struggle uh, with that, even as we're not able to do that perfectly, we give praise to you that you do know us perfectly, that you know the deepest, darkest parts of us, and yet you call us yours. That's a grace that I don't understand. And I desire that we'd be a people who, who live it out more and more each day, that our lives might be transformed and but that those that you put in our midst might see uh, the glory of the kingdom to come. Lord, would you make these things so? Thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for the ways um, that you're, you're doing this work already. It's all you. I love you, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time in our service this morning, uh, we come, we invite believers to the communion table. When we come to the communion table, we take the one bread and we break from it. We do this remembering that we have been saved, united through one body, Jesus Christ. And we take that bread. That bread represents his body broken. And in the same way his body was broken, our record of lawlessness, the sins, the deepest, darkest part of, parts of us, the stumbles of this day, the things that we don't want anybody else to know, even as we struggle with that, Christ has paid the price for it. Our record of lawlessness is broken before the Father. And we take that bread and we dip it in the one cup, 
The blood of Christ is represented by the juice. And we remember that as, Christ, as the blood flowed from Christ's body, so his righteousness flowed upon us. That because Jesus bore the weight of our sin, because he bore the punishment, we now, what Martin Luther called the great exchange, he has exchanged our brokenness, our sinfulness, for his perfect righteousness. Because unlike the heresy of the Gnostics, Christ was fully man. The Son of the God himself moved into the neighborhood and put on flesh and bore in the sins, the temptations, everything that we experience, yet he remained perfectly holy and righteous, and he was the worthy lamb. And so we celebrate his body broken and his blood poured out. We, he, Jesus tells us, told us himself, he told John at the table, do this in remembrance of me, knowing that for generations, for centuries to come, there would be difficult days, or we would be led into all kinds of temptations. Gnosticism would not be the first. There are several forms of that today. There would always be a temptation to take the gospel and distort it, to use it for personal gain. We would continuously need to have our eyes turned back to Jesus. And that's why this is a sacrament of the church that we do every week, because every week, every moment, every day, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done. So the communion table, it's not just a passive thing. It's not just a small thing. It is a significant invitation by the risen Lord to come and remember him and what he has done. For this reason, the communion table is for Christians. If you are in Christ this morning, we invite you to come. Communion is for you. If you are not in Christ this morning, communion is not for you, but Jesus is for you. Don't worry about communion. It would be silly apart from Christ. But instead, I'd love to just sit with you this morning and tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done. So Christian, when you are ready, come and partake of the great communion meal.